passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. If you have known me for any decent length of time, this morning's sermon title probably won't surprise you. Uh, I look for any and every opportunity to allude to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, This morning's text is no exception. Return of the King is the culmination of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It details the long-awaited arrival of the king to his throne and uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful picture. The king ascends to the throne after a number of trials, long trials. At long last, he, he earns his kingdom, and the kingdom is restored. And as the king ascends the throne, this kingdom is not just restored, but it really enters into a golden age in his realm, one that brings up memories of a long-lost kingdom, almost a little bit of heaven on earth. And by the end of The Lord of the Rings, you're left with just this this sense of satisfaction because the king has come and everything has been made right. And you would think that with a sermon title like ours this morning, we would see something similar. When David arrives in Jerusalem returning from his exile, we would think that a new age, a golden age, has begun, a kingdom that is a little bit of heaven on earth, and yet, as we're going to see, that's not at all the case in this morning's passage. David's return to Jerusalem, that's the focus of 2 Samuel chapter 19, is perhaps more notable for its disappointment than it is for anything else. Now, this morning is our last Sunday in 2 Samuel until January. We'll take a a couple weeks starting next week to look at some Advent-related topics. But I thought it would be appropriate for us as we look at this passage, really kind of of an ending in and of itself, to remind ourselves of what we've seen so far in 2 Samuel as we come to the end of this story of Absalom's rebellion. Absalom's rebellion has come to an end. David returns to the throne, and yet we're left wondering, what do we make of all of this? What comes of all of this? Now, because it's our last Sunday in 2 Samuel, I want us to just remind us ourselves of our, our sermon series title, A Better King, because that's the overarching message of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel as well. We need a better king. And as we've been working our way through 1 and 2 Samuel, we've seen this on display over and over and over again. We need a better king than David. That's the great hope of the Old Testament, that even though David is a great king at times and in many ways, he's not good enough. We need a better king than him. That's why every Sunday, if you have been with us throughout our time in 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll notice that our goal, our aim is to focus on not King David, but instead on King Jesus. You see, there are many ways that David points us to a better king, King Jesus. One of the ways that he does that is by how he is like Jesus. We saw that in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, David shows kindness and grace and mercy for Mephibosheth, his enemy, and he welcomes him into his family. 
In texts like that, we can look at David's greatness with amazement and, and say, how much more is this true of King Jesus? It's a little bit of a taste of what is to come with our better king. And yet there's another way, in many ways, and if not more often than that in 2 Samuel, we see that King David points us to the better king, King Jesus, by how he is not like Jesus. When he fails, when he falls short, how he is lacking time and time again. In moments of disappointment, that disappointment actually leads to this expectation. It leads to a hope because someone better than David is coming. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind this morning as we consider this passage. In many ways, David's return is like Jesus's return, but in many more ways, his return is not like Jesus's return. Let's jump into 2 Samuel chapter 19 this morning, starting in verse 8. We'll see that our passage breaks into five parts. There's two bookends. There's a beginning and an end that are, are related or parallel to one another. And then there's three encounters in between. And those three encounters between David and another person kind of set the stage, help us to understand the significance of those bookends as well as the overall state of the people of Israel uh, as well as David's return as we jump into this text. Let's go ahead and pray as we begin. Lord, we are grateful for your word, the confidence that we can have in it. We thank you for how you use it, even in moments of disappointment, how you use your word to point us to the great hope, the great promise, the great expectation that we have in Jesus. God, we ask that you would do just that this morning, that you would stir within each of us a confidence in your promises, a hope and the return of your son, and an expectancy and longing for his return. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, remember how we ended last week. David and his men defeated Absalom and his rebellion, and Absalom was killed. When David hears the news, he sinks into this very deep grief, not only because he has lost his son, but because of the guilt that he feels for the role that he played in his son's death. And by the end of last week, we saw that David has returned to his kingly role. He's sitting in the gate of Mahanaim, where his army is currently located. He's welcoming his people, but all is not well. And that will become very apparent as we look at the confusion around David's return, our first section this morning. Let's pick up in the second half of verse 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So after this battle, when Israel, which is just used here to refer to those who followed Absalom rather than David, after this battle where they are defeated, they scatter to their homes and they are directionless. An argument, or maybe more charitably, just a, a debate is taking place over what they should do next. They're not sure what to do. They threw all their lot in with Absalom. That didn't work out for them. Now they're not sure what to do. 
Now, apparently some people still stand opposed to the idea of returning to David, welcoming him back, but there are those who want to reach out to David. After all, David is the one who has always delivered them from their enemies, like the Philistines, and what's more, Absalom is dead. Their coup has failed. They don't have any other options. And as we read that, we might say, well, maybe this isn't as strong of a declaration of allegiance to David as we would hope, but it's better than nothing. Verse 11, and King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Now, what's significant about those first couple of verses that we read, it's only Israel that is discussing bringing David back as king. David's own tribe, the people of Judah, has made no effort whatsoever to ask David to come back as king. And if we've been following along in this story, we can understand the tension. The rebellion against David actually started with Judah. Absalom's power base is found in Judah. And maybe Judah is silent about David because as the ones who led the rebellion against David, they're nervous because they're not sure what, is, what David is going to do to them. And yet we don't have to fear. They don't have to fear. David is a gracious and kind king. He sends two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, as messengers to Judah, invites them back along the rest of the people of Israel. And some people interpret his words here as playing favoritism, as being divisive, saying, you're my, you're my brothers, you're, you're bone and flesh to me, you should be the ones who welcome me back. But instead of seeing this as a form of favoritism, it's better instead to see it as an invitation to unity. David is saying, everyone else is welcoming me back, why don't you as well? David's focus here. When he says, you are my bone and my flesh, it's to say, you are like everyone else. He's actually quoting the people of Israel all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 5, when they anointed David as king, the reason for anointing David as king was because he was of their bone and their flesh. So David isn't trying to drive a wedge in between these two groups. He's not saying, I like Judah better than Israel. Instead, he's trying to bring them back together. He's trying to heal a broken nation. And now David doesn't just stop with inviting Judah to come join Israel and welcome him back. He also calms their fears. He addresses their fears that David is a man who's going to take vengeance. And that's what he focuses on in verse 13. And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of, his, of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. Now remember from last week who Amasa is. He's David's nephew that was actually appointed by Absalom as the new leader of Israel's army. He was the leader of the people whose sole mission was to kill David. And yet David is saying, Amasa, you will remain as the commander of the army. He's saying by, by keeping Absalom's appointment of Amasa and, and saying this is going to stand, David is saying, if you fought against me, 
you don't have to fear me. You don't have to look any further than just at Amasa himself. And so David, David's overtures here, they work. Judah joins Israel in welcoming David back. That's what we see in verse 15. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. This is a significant verse. Remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 15, David is fleeing for his life from Jerusalem and he crosses over the Jordan into the land outside of the promised land, east of the promised land. And now we see he's crossing back. He's again crossing over the Jordan River. This is significant because it is the return of God's chosen king to God's chosen place, to the promised land. Now, to make this even more explicit, notice that this crossing takes place at Gilgal. Gilgal is a very significant place for the people of Israel. It's the location when the people of Israel first entered the promised land centuries earlier under the leadership of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 3 and 4, they camped at Gilgal. This is a moment that is rich in symbolism. Just like Israel had been in the wilderness but entered into the promised land, now also the true Israel, those who remained faithful to David, those who had not rebelled against him, they enter into the promised land. This is a powerful picture of God's character, that he keeps his promises to his people even in their rebellion, even in their sin, even in rejecting God's chosen king. God is bringing the king back. Now, there's more we could say about that. It's worth reflecting on. There's this word that's used over and over in this story, Passover. We saw that a couple chapters ago. It's, it's repeated over and over and over here. There's, there's some deep significance that's, that's being described here, but we're going to keep moving. That's our first bookend, the the confusion surrounding David's return. Now we move to the first of three encounters. David, as he returns into the land. Now remember, these three encounters are basically a microcosm of the state of Israel as a whole. They, they help us understand what's going on with David's return. So the first one is starting in verse 16, David and Shimei. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. You may remember Shimei. We first met him in 2 Samuel chapter 16 as David is fleeing from Jerusalem. He takes it upon himself to curse David and to throw rocks at David. He interpreted David's flight from Jerusalem as proof positive that God was bringing judgment upon David for his sin, specifically his quote-unquote sin in now being the king instead of Saul. Of course, here we see the danger, and I would say the foolishness, for all of us in interpreting circumstances as evidence of God's blessing or curse upon people. Because what about when things change? For Shimei, he assumed that David's circumstances were proof, all the proof that he needed, that God had abandoned David. But now that David is returning to the throne, does that mean that God has changed his mind? 
that, that God is fickle, that God is no longer judging David. The reality is, and we should take this to heart, is that circumstances, our circumstances, the circumstances of other people are never necessarily a declaration of God's blessing or of God's judgment upon people. People who are obedient to God have and will continue to suffer. And those who are rebelling against God sometimes experience plenty and ease. And we would be wise to not overinterpret circumstances to make sweeping judgments about other people in one state before God, either ours or someone else's. Now for Shimei, he never would have imagined that David would be victorious over Absalom. He realizes that his cursing might not end up so well for him, that David might have a score to settle. And so when he hears the news that David is returning, he is one of the first people to meet David at the Jordan River to welcome him back. Savvy move, right? Verse 18 again. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord the king. So when Shimei sees David, he falls down before him. He asks for pardon. He freely confesses. Hey, what I did not only wasn't wise, it was sinful. And so he asks David for mercy. And it's natural for us to question the legitimacy here of Shimei's repentance. He calls his former action sin, but he probably wouldn't have reached that same conclusion if David would have died, if Absalom would have been victorious. And the only reason that he is here before David is because he has been scared into repentance in order to save his own sin. And I would say, we shouldn't be too hard on Shimei here. We shouldn't be too hard on him for his motives. Because how often are our motives for repentance and asking for forgiveness motivated by something that's a little self-serving? How often are our motivations for repentance fully pure? You know, back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David repents of his sin, he confesses of his sin. It's the exact same language that we see from Shimei here. David wouldn't have confessed his sin unless God would have sent a prophet to rebuke him. There was a, a small amount of self-serving realization there from David as well. And we can't know Shimei's heart. David himself doesn't seem to know Shimei's heart. But we would do well to pause and just marvel at the grace of God, the mercy of God that he has for us, that he doesn't demand pure repentance from us. 
but he welcomes us in regardless of our reasoning for turning to him. And so David extends mercy just like Jesus extends mercy to us. David extends mercy to those who would come to him in repentance, even if that repentance is at least partially, if not wholly, self-motivated. And we can say the same thing, we can't say the same thing, rather, about David's nephew, Abishai, here. If you've met Abishai before, if you remember him, he seems to think that every solution, or the solution to every problem is a beheading, just cutting someone's head off. One pastor I read earlier this week, he said, Abishai had never met a head that couldn't be taken off. That's Abishai here, verse 21. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he has cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave an oath. David spares Shimei's life for now. If you flip ahead to 1 Kings chapter 2, we see that that is not the case. He gives a concern or a command concerning Shimei after David dies. And I have my thoughts on why David does that, why he pardons now, but he doesn't later. I think he's willing to see if Shimei's repentance is genuine if he's actually going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, to borrow a phrase from the New Testament. But for now, he pardons and he extends mercy. That brings us to our second encounter. This time it's between David and Mephibosheth. Recall again who Mephibosheth is. We met him in 2 Samuel chapter 9 when David functionally adopts him as his son. Mephibosheth was the heir to Saul's throne and yet, rather than killing his rival claimant to the throne, which was the common practice of that day, David ex- instead extends an invitation to Mephibosheth to become a part of his family. But then in 2 Samuel chapter 16, when David is fleeing from Jerusalem, we receive some troubling news. Mephibosheth's servant Ziba, and notice that he came to the Jordan River with Shimei in the previous section, he claims that Mephibosheth, has betrayed David and has stayed behind in Jerusalem, hoping that he could take advantage of the chaos of Absalom's rebellion so that he could seize the throne. And in response to that, back in 2 Samuel chapter 16, David gifts all of Mephibosheth's land to Ziba. Pick up in verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? So David cut straight to the point. Why are you here now when you weren't here earlier? Verse 26. He answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king for your servant is lame. 
He has slandered your servant to my Lord the King, but my Lord the King is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you, for all my father's house were but doomed men to death before my Lord the King, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Mephibosheth uh, reveals that, that Ziba was lying. Mephibosheth, remember, he was crippled, unable to walk. And he needed someone to prepare a donkey for him in order to leave Jerusalem with David. And yet, rather than preparing a donkey for Mephibosheth, Ziba prepares a donkey and takes it for himself, leaves on his own. Mephibosheth's sorry state, notice his dirty appearance back in verse 24, is evidence of his sorrow over David's exile, his desire to go with David. But Mephibosheth isn't coming before David to say, hey, he lied to me, or lied to you. Now give me my property back. He's he's not even coming to prove his innocence before David. His highest priority is David's return to the throne. And so he comes in order to welcome David back. Even if David were to take everything away from Mephibosheth, everything that he has given to Mephibosheth, and that's a lot, He doesn't care. He's not asking for more mercy from David. He's going to be content with the fact that David, the Lord's chosen king, has returned. Verse 29. And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. David issues a judgment here. Mephibosheth and Ziba will split the land. This may surprise us, and it's not exactly fair. For if Mephibosheth is lying, he certainly doesn't deserve the land back. But if Ziba is the one who is lying, he just schemed in order to acquire some property that does not belong to him. So why does David do this? Is it because David's not convinced on which side of the story he should believe? Is it because David is an unjust king? He doesn't really care. He just wants to get this problem over with. I think the real answer is that this is a test. David splits the land as a test of Mephibosheth's story and his allegiance. What's your real motive here, Mephibosheth? Is it to acquire your property back? Are you going to throw a, a fit here in this moment where I split the land? What is your chief concern? Is it me? the Lord's king returning. We actually see David's son Solomon do something similar in 1 Kings chapter 3, don't we? The famous story of two women come before with one child, both claiming that it is their own. And Solomon, in order to test who is the true mother, says, cut the child in half. And one of the, one of the women says, you know what, do it, because if I can't have this child, then she can't either. But one woman says, give it all. Give the child fully to this other woman to spare his life. It's the same thing that's taking place here. David tests Mephibosheth, and his response will speak volumes, and Mephibosheth passes the test with flying colors. There's a third encounter at the Jordan River, this one between David and Barzillai. 
We met Barzillai back in 2 Samuel chapter 17. He met David in his exile with much needed supplies. Now we see that David seeks to reward him for the kindness that he has shown to him. Verse 31. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogolim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. Now I want to stress that I just read the text as it is. So if you are 80 plus, if you're nearing 80, it was not Jordan who said very aged and 80 in the same sentence. That's just the text. Psalm 90 actually gives us a little bit of insight into what exactly is meant here. In ancient Israel, 80 was basically not just a full life, but a very full life. Now, that's not to say it was a life expectancy or that people didn't live past that age, just that it was symbolizing a life of completeness. Lord willing, if you are nearing 80 or that's where you're at, you'd be able to say the exact same thing. I've had a full life. I've lived a life of completeness. So when Barzillai here, is, when the text says that he's 80 and very aged, the, the text is just saying he's had a good life. And there's not much more that he needs in order to make it complete. Verse 33. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live? that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem. I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother." But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. So David wants to honor Barzillai for his kindness toward him. Barzillai says, you know what? That, that goodness, that kindness is going to be wasted on me. But if you insist, David, here's my son. We see that from uh, First Chronicles, maybe Second Chronicles. Uh, we see that this is his son, Chimham. And he says, honor him in my place. Pick up in verse 38. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me. I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. So David agrees, brings Chimham with him across the Jordan River. He's met by a company from Judah and from Israel to bring him back to Jerusalem. And it's a satisfying end to the story, right? The king has returned. The new golden age has begun. David picks up right where he left off. Life is good. But that's not, of course, what happens We turn to the end of the chapter. We see the second end of the chapter. There's tension here. 
There's tension with David's return. Maybe you caught the ominous tone of David's return to Jerusalem already in verse 40. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. David, in spite of all of his attempts to unite Israel in order to pardon his enemies, he has failed. Only half of Israel has shown up to welcome him home. And this tension will play itself out over the course of the final few verses. Verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all, the, at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the, men, well, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Notice how this chapter begins, or this story begins and ends. At the beginning, David attempts to unify Israel by sending emissaries to Judah. What's intended to unite the people was interpreted as favoritism, and instead, this tension between Judah and Israel, it flourishes. It's still alive and well. David rules over a fragmented kingdom, and that's actually going to escalate into another rebellion. We see that already. The next verse, chapter 20, verse 1, there is another rebellion coming. The king has returned, but his kingdom is still broken, and there's this tension. In short, it's a far cry from what we long for and what we hope for. The three encounters here in the middle of this chapter show us David's attempt to make things right. He pardons his enemies. He shows kindness to those who remain loyal to him, like Mephibosheth and Barzillai. And yet, in spite of that, the kingdom is still broken. Half of the people have still rejected David as their king. And soon Israel will turn their backs on David, and by extension, they'll turn their backs on God himself. In a very real way here, this opposition to the king is a foreshadowing of the opposition that Jesus himself faces before his crucifixion and will again face at his return. This is Jesus' own message. On Palm Sunday, when he tells this story, he's talking to these crowds and he's telling this story about his kingdom. I encourage you to read it. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, if you're interested. See if you can pick up the parallels between David's return and this story and Jesus' return. It goes like this. Jesus starts by saying that there was once a nobleman who left his country in order to be appointed a king. And that might seem a little bit odd to us, but it was familiar to the people in Jesus' day. 
Herod the Great was known as King Herod, but only after he left Judea and traveled all the way to Rome in order to be called a king. Before this nobleman leaves, he gathers together 10 of his servants and he gives those servants one mina each. And a mina was worth about three months' salary. Today, the medium family income is $75,000. So let's say this is $18,000 in today's currency. And he entrusts this money to each of his servants and says, go, engage in business until I come back. And I think that's fascinating. He doesn't say, go, make a profit. He doesn't say, make me more money. He just says, go engage in business. But after he leaves, the people of the country gather together and they send a representative off to this far country in order to prevent him from being made the king because they hate him. Now, significantly, the text doesn't tell us he was a bad person. In fact, the fact that he's called a nobleman implies the opposite. But their bid to prevent this nobleman from becoming a king fails. It's unsuccessful. And he eventually returns as the king. And when he comes back, he calls his servants to come and tell him what they did with the money he gave him. Of the ten, the first one comes and says, I took that one mina and it turned into ten minas. It's an astounding thousand percent rate of return. And this new king is impressed and says, well done. You have proved to me that you are trustworthy with $18,000. So now I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities in my kingdom. In other words, he's saying, you thought a thousand percent rate of return was impressive. Look what I can do. Look what I will do to those who are faithful while I am gone. A second comes and says, I took that one mina and I turned it into five minas, which is another astounding rate of return. The king is again impressed. He says, well done. You were trustworthy with $18,000. Now I'm going to have you govern five cities in my kingdom. There's eight servants remaining. Only one more returns. And that servant comes before his now king and says, look, I just hid away the $18,000 in my handkerchief. Here it is. Now, before you get upset with me, I did it because I don't think you're a very good person. The new king is not impressed. He had asked his servants to do business with their minas, and this man didn't do anything with his. He didn't even put it in the bank so that it would create, collect some marginal interest that he could give back to his king. What's more, he flings the blame for his laziness, his poor stewardship back on the king and claims that it's the king's fault. If you were a better king, if, if I liked you more, I would have actually done what you had asked. And so the king takes away his mina and gives it to the first servant. And the crowds who are watching this, they object, and the king basically says, do you, do you realize this is all just a test? This is just a test to see if you're going to be faithful while I was gone. I've given you something. Are you going to be faithful with it while I'm gone? That one, he proved he was going to be faithful. And so, of course, I'm going to give him more so he can be faithful. That one proved that he is not faithful. So, of course, I'm going to take away what I've given to him. But then Jesus ends this story with some shocking words in verse 27. 
He says this, and this is as the king. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What? What can Jesus possibly mean by this? Well, consider, if Jesus is the true king, if he's the better king that 2 Samuel is pointing us to, then I think the answer is relatively clear. When Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, there were basically two responses to this king. Some met Jesus with joy and gladness. Some of them met him with derision. And that's what the gospels tell us. You read the gospels. Some of the disciples welcomed Jesus on Palm Sunday with joy. And yet there is also a crowd on Good Friday that cries out, crucify him. Because they have no interest in this king. But that's not all. For Jesus' kingdom is here. It's not fully here. And like David, Jesus was rejected by his people as king. And like the nobleman who had departed for a far country, the same is true of Jesus today. Jesus has departed into heaven, though he is present with us through the Holy Spirit, dwelling within his people. He is not physically present. And just like the king in this story in Luke chapter 19 entrusts his servants with gifts before he departs, The same thing is true of every single person who walks the earth. Jesus has departed, and yet he has given every single person something to steward. It doesn't matter if you are a Christian or not, no matter whether you think your talents are, are great or not, they've been loaned to you from God with the purpose that you would engage in business that you wouldn't squander what God has entrusted to you. But instead, you would use what he has entrusted to you well and faithfully. And just as the king one day returned from that far-off country to his kingdom, just as David returned to his throne in Jerusalem, we can be sure that Jesus is one day coming back. And one day on his return, he will call every single person to account. He will ask every single person how they have stewarded what he entrusted to them while he was gone. Do you see the thread that is connecting this story, the return of David, the return of Jesus? It's clear that there are two responses to this king. You can live expectantly for this king, or you can reject him. And there's no middle ground. You can be like those first two servants who were faithful what had been entrusted to them. They were, they were different levels of fruitful, but they were both faithful. They took their master's words seriously and they put them into practice. And when the king returned, he found them doing exactly what he had asked them to do. And you know what? I, I think that fact, that they were doing what he had asked them to do, mattered far more than the rate of return. And we see the exact same thing in 2 Samuel, that there are some, like Mephibosheth, 
who's waiting. He's waiting for his king to return. And he's waiting expectantly because he hasn't taken care of himself for the entire time that David was gone. On the other hand, you can reject the king. You can reject him like those who sent a delegation after him trying to get rid of him, prevent him from entering into his kingdom. You can reject him like those who, with indifference, those servant, seven servants that never even showed up to, make, uh, to share what they did with their mina. Or you could be like that final servant, rejecting him through laziness and blame shifting like this third servant who clearly didn't like his master but wanted to look the part. And again, we see that in 2 Samuel. Maybe that's Shimei. Maybe that's Ziba. It's certainly those who didn't welcome David back. What we see in David's return shines a spotlight on our own hearts and our own reaction to the return of the king. The true king, King Jesus, is coming. And David was unable to fully mend his broken kingdom. It dissolved into another rebellion shortly after he ascends to the throne, but not with King Jesus. All will either welcome him, welcoming him across the Jordan. I love that imagery. It's not just because my name's Jordan. (laughs) Or they will rise up against him. The question is, one you have to ask of yourself. What about me? That's the message of 2 Samuel chapter 19 concerning our better king. It's simply a question we have to ask. Where will I stand? Where will you stand when the king returns? Are you with the king or against him? because there's no middle ground. And where you stand makes all the difference in the world. Where will you stand when the king returns? Next Sunday is the beginning of Advent. And the way the church calendar is set up, it's a time set apart each year to reflect on the return of Christ in order, or Jesus' first coming, in order to prepare our hearts for his second coming, his return. What a perfect time of year to remind ourselves of the importance of where we stand with the king and where we will stand when he returns. The king will one day return. How will you respond when he comes? Where will you stand when the king returns? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of great joy and gladness that waits those who are found faithful. At the same time, God, we tremble at the thought of what awaits if we're not ready. 
Thank you for being a gracious God. That there's no way for us to earn or merit faithfulness in your eyes. But instead, if we come to Jesus, our better king, his faithfulness, his righteousness can be ours. Help us in light of that to be ready for your return. For we long for the return of the king. It's in that king's name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.